Well, folks, we have been speaking about uh, oh, a sensitive subject last week, and that is the subject of racism. And uh, we want to talk about it still one more time this evening with specific attention to this question, is interracial marriage wrong? And uh, some here would very quickly and honestly say, yes, absolutely, uh, it is wrong. And others would answer just as quickly, no, uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with interracial marriage. And so the opinions uh, obviously will fall on other, uh, either side of the issue, even amongst uh, Christians, and they'll be passionately and strongly felt uh, feelings. And so we want to respect one another's opinions, but not uh, over against the final authority on this and other such matters, and, the, and that's the scriptures. So I hope you agree with me when we, in areas like this, make final recourse to the word of God. Our opinions have a measure of validity and ought to be listened to and really heard out. Um, and yet they're not the umpire on, on this particular question and many others like it. It's the scriptures because we believe it's the word of God. It's without error. It's our it's our chief and highest authority, the Bible. And so we want to see what the Bible has to say about this question of interracial marriage. And I hope you uh, allow me to chat with you and listen with an open mind. Please don't be persuaded of something you don't feel God is persuading you of. But so I don't so much want you to be open to me, uh, but I want you to be open to the scriptures as we open them. So what do the scriptures say about the issue of interracial marriage? Uh, I think I can tell you in one word, nothing, uh, absolutely nothing. Now that may come as uh, some surprise to you, but I have searched the scriptures. There are 66 books in the Bible, and uh, there's not one verse of scripture that has anything to do with interracial marriage. Which begs the question, uh, then why are we addressing the subject if the Bible does not? And I'll give you the answer. It's because many people who have strongly felt opinions about interracial marriage attribute those opinions to the Bible and yet sometimes do so wrongly by a mishandling of the scriptures. And so that is our responsibility to be diligent in handling the word of God with accuracy. And so though you're surely entitled to your final conclusion on the matter, I, I'm not sure you ought to feel the permission to support your conclusion with the Bible unless the Bible supports your conclusion. And so, for instance, those who feel that the scriptures very strongly issue a prohibition on interracial marriage uh, will call upon certain key passages of scripture to lend support to that position. And so I want to just read to you one of those. It's Deuteronomy chapter 7. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, this is what we read. When the Lord your God. Uh, it's a reference to the ancient Israelites who had recently been liberated from bondage after 400 plus years. 
And, and so Moses, who's the author, is saying, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, well, we would know that land as Israel today, or maybe you refer to it as the Holy Land, or the land of Canaan. And so when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, so you recall uh, the ancient Israelites left Egypt and traveled uh, for 40 years during wilderness wanderings and now are being prepared to take possession of the land which God was going to bequeath to them. And so they're being prepared for this event. So Oh, when you are about to enter and possess this land, uh, uh, and, and the Lord your God clears away the many nations before you, and they're named here, uh, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hevites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and uh, when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, here's the point that applies to our discussion, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. And so you can see how those who are strongly opposed to racial intermarriage uh, would find a basis for that strongly held opinion uh, by invoking this passage in Deuteronomy 7. And uh, on the surface, for sure, uh, this passage looks like a prohibition, for sure, uh, against racial intermarriage. But upon closer scrutiny, I wonder if interracial marriage is what's really being prohibited by this passage of scripture at all. Is it interracial marriage which is being prohibited or is it something else? Well, I think the answer to the question is quite easy. As you look to the very next verse, and that would be Deuteronomy 7 verse 4, for they, the people of the land, known under the broad umbrella as Canaanites, for they, uh, the Canaanites, will turn your sons, the Israelites, the people of the land, the Canaanites, will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So what we have here actually is not a prohibition against interracial marriage. What we really have at the root of what God is saying through Moses is an expression of his concern about intermarriage between redeemed people and unredeemed people, between those who are parties to the covenant with God and those who are apart from the covenant with God. The Israelites were possessed by, redeemed by, delivered by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, but the Canaanites, the people in the land to which the Israelites were going, worshipped the multiplicity of gods. And so the God was deeply concerned that in the course of a marital covenant relationship as an Israelite and a Canaanite entered into this partnership together, there would be indeed a high probability that the spiritual perspective of the Canaanite spouse would infect and affect 
that and lead astray the spiritual value system of the Israelite. That's what's being prohibited, a spiritual inequality, uh, but not a racial differentiation. So you're entitled to any opinion you choose to come to, but you dare not blame it on the scripture if that's not what the Bible is saying. And I don't think you can, based on my comments, use Deuteronomy 7 to support any prohibition against interracial marriage at all. The Canaanites, the Israelites, they had absolutely nothing in common spiritually. The Israelites worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one God, they were monotheistic, but the Canaanites were polytheistic. Every locality, in fact, had its own deity. And so God was deeply concerned about the purity of the line of promise through whom the Lord Jesus would come, that it would not be rendered impure by intermarriage with those who worshiped false gods rather than the true God. The watchwords of the Jewish faith can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the one right before this one written by Moses. We call it the Shema. We sing it all the time. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. It's in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel. That's what Shema means. Listen up. The Lord your God is one. And so the one God said, you dare not enter into marital covenant with the Canaanites because to them they don't know the one true God your God who has redeemed and delivered you. And I'm afraid that you will exchange your loyalty, worship, and devotion to me for a compromised position of loyalty to me plus these other gods. But here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You cannot add to him the worship of any other and still worship him in spirit and truth. And that's what God was concerned about. That is not a Rothberg opinion. I just read it to you in Deuteronomy 7, verse 4. For they will turn... Don't marry them. Why? Because they're racially different? No. But because they'll turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. They had nothing in common, don't you see, spiritually. So that's what God prohibits. So you see, God's prohibition against Israelites marrying Canaanites had nothing to do with race. It was about spiritual commonality. You are absolutely entitled at the end of our time tonight to come to any final conclusion you want, but you're not entitled to base it on a mishandling of the scripture. That's the point. You cannot leave this place saying, I take my marching orders from the word of God and then disregard or mishandle the word of God. I know about tradition and culture and society. I know about all that kind of stuff. But more than that kind of stuff, I want to know about the stuff of the word of God. And this particular stuff in Deuteronomy 7 says nothing about interracial marriage. It says everything about unequal yokedness, 
to someone who doesn't know covenant God. That's what's being prohibited here in Old Testament scripture. And boy, is it awfully quiet in here. So what this passage says no to is marriage between a believer and a non-believer. It is not a prohibition of marriage between people of different racial groups. Do you remember two women, one named Rahab and the other named Ruth? Is that familiar to you, Rahab and Ruth? Do you realize both were, well, you tell me, what was their ethnicity? Both. They were Gentiles. They weren't Jews. Yeah. Rahab and Ruth were both Gentiles. That was their ethnicity. They weren't members of the Hebrew race. They were Gentiles. Rahab, in fact, was a Canaanite. And Ruth was, in fact, a Moabite. The dreaded and despised Moabites. When Israel cut through their land or wanted to, they didn't let them. I mean, it was bad blood between the Israelites, the Canaanites, the Moabites, these two ladies are non-Jews, Rahab and Ruth. And yet, the Bible tells us they both married Jewish men, which indicates to me they have really good taste. (laughs) You know what I mean? They both married Jewish men, and the point is, nowhere in this scripture can you show me where God spoke out against those partnerships. Not one place does God indict the Jewish men for marrying these Gentile women. Why not? Well, because both Rahab and Ruth met the true God and turned to him and away from their false gods. And thus, both women, regardless of their ethnicity, became part of the community of believers made up of all ethnicities. Therefore, both women, though Gentiles and not Jews, were free to marry Jewish men who, like them, worshipped the true God. I want to tell you, not only were Rahab and Ruth included in the community of believers and thus permitted to marry other believers, though of a different race, they even were included in the genealogical line of the Lord Jesus himself. You are entitled to your point of view, but you better not blame your point of view on the scriptures if the scriptures don't support your point of view. It's okay to say, I think, I feel, but that's a whole lot different than saying, and God said. And God said, has veto veto power over what you or I think. So I know we're all raised in different ways and all the rest, but that's not the deciding issue on matters of faith and practice. The Bible is. And so in the very genealogy of the Lord Jesus, you see the names of these two Gentile women. Are you kidding me? Matthew chapter 1 verse 5. Salmon. That's not salmon. (laughs) Ain't nothing fishy about this. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. So to produce uh, Boaz, 
there had to be the marital partnership between Salmon, the father, and Rahab, the mama. Okay, so you got this so far? So the Jewish guy, Salmon, uh, married the Gentile woman, uh, Rahab, and they had a child named Boaz. And Boaz uh, was the father of Obed by Ruth. So then this character, Boaz, married Ruth, uh, Ruth being a Gentile woman, and they produced a child named Obed. And Obed uh, became the father of Jesse. And I shall stop there and leave it, the rest up to you. You can consult Matthew 1, and you will see uh, as you continue in the genealogical line, it ends with the Lord Jesus. So, so, so you have these two Gentile women who married these two Jewish guys, Boom, smack dab in the middle of the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something else that is quite interesting. I find it interesting, perhaps you will. Rahab, as I mentioned, is a Canaanite. She found the God of Israel, or more accurately, he found her. And uh, therefore, legitimately married another Israelite, a Jewish guy though he be a person of a different race. And through their union, as I mentioned, Boaz was born. So that makes Boaz, who is the son of a Jewish father and a Gentile mother, it makes Boaz, who is in the Lord's genealogical line, uh, the product of an interracial marriage. Are you getting it? And Ruth, a Moabite, married him, Boaz, the guy who's the product of an interracial marriage. Now, if you're having a hard... Hey, how's it going? If, you, if you're having a hard time with, with all of this, um, I would encourage you to take it to the Lord Jesus Christ and talk it over. You know, I would encourage you to just say, wait, please just say it ain't so... Please don't tell me that, that, that members of different racial groups can marry one another. Please! That's not the, what I've heard. It's not what I've learned. It's not what I find palatable. It's not what I like. Take it to the Lord Jesus and say, help me with all this. Because you seem to allow it right in your own genealogical line. Good night. Now, you may say this just doesn't happen in the deep south. Well, okay, it happens in the deep Bible. So you can see uh, the Bible has not issued here or anywhere else a prohibition against interracial marriage at all. What God is concerned about is not racial commonality in marriage. He is concerned about spiritual commonality in marriage. So, I, as I mentioned earlier, the Bible doesn't say a thing about interracial marriage. It neither condones it nor prohibits it. That's not its interest. But it does say a whole bunch about spiritual commonality in marriage. Well, there's another passage of Scripture. In this case, it's in the New Testament. It, too, is often selectively taken by those uh, who are uh, um, tied to 
uh, the position that the Bible strongly prohibits interracial marriage. And so I call it to your attention. You're familiar with it. We'll take a look at it. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? But I think once again, any normal reading of that passage will clearly suggest to any reasonable and thinking person that it has absolutely nothing to do with interracial marriage. It too concerns spiritual disharmony. It does not say in anyone's translation, do not be bound together with a person of a different race. It says, do not be bound together if you're a believer, with an unbeliever. That's what it says. Why shouldn't there be this partnership between a believer and an unbeliever? Well, because there would be insufficient spiritual commonality. There would be insufficient spiritual, these are the words used in the verse, partnership and insufficient spiritual fellowship. In the law of Moses, Old Testament, in the law of Moses, you were not allowed to put a donkey and an ox together as a work team. And I'm sure you wanted to know that. (laughs) You can't match up a donkey and an ox, according to the law of Moses. It actually says this in Deuteronomy 22.10. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Why not? Well, because the ox was considered to be a clean animal under the law of Moses, but the donkey was not. And so therefore, it would be wrong to yoke them together uh, clean animal, you see, would be partnered up with an unclean animal, and the animals would therefore be, to coin a word, misyoked. They would be inappropriately yoked. I think Paul, who wrote 2 Corinthians 6.14 and himself a Jew, Uh, knew of this passage in the law of Moses, and I think he is thinking of it when he declares what he does in 2 Corinthians 6.14 about a believer not being yoked to a non-believer because one is considered to be spiritually clean while the other is considered in the eyes of God to be spiritually unclean. And so I hope you can see once again that what is prohibited in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is exactly the same thing, and it is not interracial marriage. What the Bible prohibits is marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. That's what it says. I know this is hard to swallow, But so is good nourishment for a growing infant and young child. But we have to chew on it, digest it, take it in and swallow it if we are to mature. It is unacceptable to stagnate in the Christian life, which is to be being reparented, 
by a heavenly father who is feeding us on spiritual food, which means you got to leave behind a lot of stuff in order to chew on spiritual nourishment. Not just you, me also. Otherwise, you look too much like people who don't know Christ Jesus. Once again, it's still a free country. Believe what you want. We go to war to defend everyone's right to have and state an opinion. I'm just saying don't connect it to the Bible if you can't make a legitimate connection to it. Otherwise, you drag inerrant, inspired scripture down to the level of your personal opinion and cultural and societal traditions. Well, then worship your culture and society and opinions and just be honest and say you don't put it all under the Bible. But if you say it, you better mean it even what it has to say about interracial marriage, which is nothing. It only prohibits a partnership between a believer and an unbeliever. Why? Well, because the potential for compromise of biblical values is just far too great. In a marital partnership such as this, the believer says, it's Sunday, let's go to church. The unbeliever says, no, I don't want to go. You could. I'm sleeping in. It comes time to the uh, allocation of funds, and the believer says, I want to make a contribution to somebody willing to take the gospel to a country uh, far away where the name of Jesus is really named. And the unbelieving partner says, over my dead body, I want to use it to build a deck in the backyard. Or the believing spouse says, I don't want to have that alcohol in the home. You make recourse to it far too often. You're becoming habitually addicted to it. And the unbeliever says, too bad. It relieves stress. And the believer says, before we go to sleep tonight, would it be okay if we read a chapter from the Bible? And the unbeliever says, no way. I don't need that. Can you see the potential for spiritual opposition and adversity and even compromise if a believer marries an unbeliever? And that in both Old and New Testaments is what is clearly prohibited. It has nothing to do with the prohibition on racial intermarriage. The value systems of believers and unbelievers are in opposition to one another. But this is not necessarily the case when two Christians who happen to be of different races marry. And so because they are both in covenant relationship with Christ, they are certainly permitted to be in covenant relationship with one another. Don't you see? So then, nothing in either the Old Testament or the New Testament prohibits interracial marriage. Nothing at all. But, let's be honest, though there are no biblical grounds for the prohibition of interracial marriage, there surely are some societal realities 
which have to be taken into account by an interracial couple contemplating marriage. Any marriage has its challenges. You know that if you're married. Amen, said a very bold and courageous husband here. I mean, there are temperament differences and personality differences and life experience differences. There are challenges in every marriage for sure. But interracial marriages are going to face, right or wrong, additional challenges. That is an unavoidable reality this side of heaven. So the couple must know that there will be opposition and perhaps even condemnation from some elements of society. Secondly, you can't avoid this reality, the children of interracial marriages are oftentimes discriminated against and teased. That is a sad, harsh, but true reality. And here's another reality the interracial couple contemplating marriage must consider. You've heard it said, when you marry the person, you marry the person's whole family. You've heard it's very, very true. And so, therefore, the couple must be prepared to run into the possibility of family displeasure with the partnership. I didn't say it's right. I'm just saying it is. For instance, Moses, you've heard of him. Uh, he's a, a Jewish guy. You may not know that Moses, the Jewish guy, uh, married an African woman. I don't know if you knew this. Yeah, Moses, the Jew, married an African woman. And God had no problem with the marriage. I defy you to show me in the Bible where God gets lathered up about it, indicts it, and yells at Moses about it. But Moses' family went ballistic. Numbers 12, verse 1. Then Miriam, that's Moses' sister, and Aaron, that's Moses' brother, spoke against Moses because of the Cushite, Cush, it's a country in Africa, because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. See that? God found it no problemo. The family members freaked out. It's a reality. It's society. That's the way it is. And so these considerations, which are real ones, uh, have to be faced, and yet I don't think a one of them is a reason for an interracial couple not to marry. They're simply challenges they, they're going to face. But the interracial couple has to be absolutely certain, more certain of this than anything else, that God is joining them together and that their love for one another is sufficient and strong enough to help them overcome and deal with the onslaught of prejudicial, narrow-minded, fleshly-oriented members of society. It's a reality. So let me say once again, the Bible doesn't have a thing to say about interracial marriages. It neither condones them nor prohibits them. And here's the reason why. It's real simple. 
You and I are prone to make judgments about people based upon externals. That's called prejudgments. That's called prejudice. We make judgments about people, let's face it, everyone here does, based upon externals, but God doesn't. God is better than us. I don't know if you knew that. God doesn't judge people on the basis of their ethnic or racial features. God judges people according to their heart. And he finds some whose hearts are wide open to him and thus are filled up with his Holy Spirit. And on the other hand, as he searches the hearts of humankind, he finds some hearts who are shut tight to him, who are closed to him. And in the Bible, this is the only basis upon which God categorizes and divides people. Not us. We make divisions on the basis of externals and languages and cultures and ethnicities and all the rest, but not God. The only two divisions of the human race from the point of view of God, well, here it is, 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. He who has the Son has the life. That's one group of people. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. That's the second. That's it. Someone who has the Son and who has the abundant and eternal life given freely by the Son dare not marry someone in the other category, but that has nothing to do with interracial marriage. That's not prohibited at all. If two people are married by faith to Almighty God through the Lord Jesus, if they are wedded to him, they can be wedded to one another regardless of racial distinctives. They are not unequally yoked. They are just going to take some hits by people, some of whom who call themselves Christians, but do not do what he says. So let me step aside from the issue which will provoke many emails, I'm sure, <laughs> and tell you this. Don't miss the forest for the trees. We talk about a lot of subjects around here. But here's the real issue. Are you wedded to Christ Jesus or not? That's the real issue. Okay. We have to tolerate some difference of opinion in other areas. Okay. One thinks he's right. One thinks he's wrong in non-essential areas. Okay. Fine. We could argue. We could debate. What, okay. It's fine. But upon this issue, your very eternal life and mine are at stake. He who has the Son, that's the Son of God, his name is Jesus the Christ, has along with him life eternal. But he who does not have the Son, he who has not established by faith a connection with the Lord Jesus, 
We'll never taste, we'll never see, we'll never experience that quality of eternal life, but instead we'll experience a kind of eternal dying apart from the giver of life. So I beseech you, don't let a thing I say uh, or anyone around here at any time distract you from the most important issue. Do you have the Son? Have you said, Lord Jesus, I'm divorced from you, but I want to be wedded to you, bound in a covenant marital relationship. I want to be your bride. I want you to be like unto my heavenly husband. Better than a ring to seal the deal, you shed your blood on a cross to seal the deal. That's the pledge of your devotion and unconditional love to me, and I accept it. Oh, God, thank you for being my heavenly husband. Thank you for being my Savior. Thank you for delivering me from a horrible life of isolation and divorcement and alienation. Thank you for ushering me into your kingdom, and thank you for preparing for me, even right now, a heavenly home in which we will dwell forevermore. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Forgive me. My sins have erected a barrier, have alienated me from you because I sin and you don't. I am unholy and you are holy. Thank you for stooping so low. You talk about a, a, a leap when one member of a race marries another member of a race. Say, oh God perfectly divine and untainted by sin, having no beginning nor end, transcendent deity who spoke all things into existence, above it all, the great beyond, you came to get me. You talk about crossing lines. The divine has proposed to the human. Are you going to be one of those humans who says, thank you, but no thank you? to the d divine and grandest proposal of all time. Jesus proposes to forgive you and to pardon you and to take you as his bride and as his own and to prepare a place for you and to grow you and you make you to look more and more like him all the time. I beseech you. We can fight over this issue tonight and all others. But don't miss this issue or you'll miss out on eternity. Will you accept the proposal of the Lord Jesus? Come to me, all ye who are divorced from me and thus heavy laden. Let me take you on a restful honeymoon. Could I ask you to bow your heads? We're going to close in prayer. Isolate yourself with closed eyes and bowed heads, if you don't mind, just for a second. <clears throat> Who wants right where you sit to confess, to acknowledge and confess personal sin and say, Lord Jesus, I accept your proposal of forgiveness? Who here does? Just raise your hand.
Thank you, sir. Put it down. Thank you, ma'am. Put it down. Those who've never done this before, who else? Just raise your hand. Who says, oh, that's what I'm feeling, huh? That's alienation. That's divorcement from the God who made me. But now I want to be reconciled through the cross on which Jesus died. What a pledge of unconditional love. Come into my Lord. Life, Lord Jesus, forgive my sin. Thank you for removing any barriers between the two of us. I accept it. I believe it. I yield to you as my Lord and Savior. Who here for the first time would like to do that? Anybody else? Raise your hand. Would you? Thank you over there. You can put your hand down, little girl. Thank you. Who else? Anybody? Don't you see how crucial? I can't think of anything more critical. Can you? Where are you with relation to Almighty God? Anybody else want the Lord Jesus as saved? Don't you see? He's looking past what you look like on the outside, and he's searching your heart. Is there room in your heart for him? If so, raise your hand. Just another minute. Can you hear him propose to you? Thank you, sir. You can... Put your hand down. Lord Jesus, we're excited because we know what raised hands reflecting honest hearts mean. It means paid in full. It means these who came as debtors are no longer debtors. Now they're children of yours, embraced by you like never before, forgiven and on the way to heaven. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for constantly being interested in redeeming. You don't want anybody to be eternally divorced from you. So we call you Redeemer and Savior. Thank you for bringing these to the cross. And in the days ahead now, we look forward to seeing them move out because of the cross into the world as living proof of the loving God who has saved them. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.